Hi everyone, welcome to 21st Century Saints, our podcast and live stream series for members um, and those adjacent to, affiliated with or hang around, interested in subjects around uh, Mormonism and sort of more specifically the Church of Jesus Christ of, the La- of Latter-day Saints here in the United Kingdom and around the world. It's great to have you all with us tonight. Um, we send to our audience our love. Uh, Sarah is uh, currently working on some safeguarding training right now so she is incredibly busy for a very good reason Um, we send her love but she is passionate about this subject tonight and uh, also we are giving Ruth some extra sunstone recovery time since uh, it was pretty awesome from what I understand (laughs) and I'm insanely jealous that I couldn't be there so um, it's it's really great that we can we can come round together as this online community and have a chat about the things that are important to us as always, we want to thank our donors. You have, um, we're excited to tell you, um, and we'll be able to talk about it more in December, some really exciting things that we have coming up that uh, your donations and your support have allowed us to do. We are going to be announcing the results, um, what we've learned from our survey on abuse. And we have, we've got some pretty big things to share there. We also have some plans to build on what we've learned so we are very excited to um share with you the difference that you have made and continue to make in this area um so yeah thank you to the donors thank you to our community thank you to everyone who joins in in the chat we really appreciate you your comments are so uh valuable to us um to get personal for a moment, um, the whole, I think, UK is, um, I, we're seeing a bit of a national, um, what would we call it, exhaustion right now, where Mormons in the church are tired um, here. And so we have sought, I think, as a whole people, lots of different ways to minister to our needs. And and for a lot of people, that's Sunstone. For a lot of people, that's going to be Thrive, which is happening. Uh, go check out the uh, uh, Avengers uh, Facebook group. There's a little bit of information on there, uh, the, the Thrive website. We're going to be having Thrive. Um, the global event in the UK is going to be coming to Glasgow. And we're really excited to be able to offer some ministry um, in the way of not talking about religion for a little bit and just yeah. having fun. Um, let's talk about the things that we uh, we need to hear in our lives that we've kind of maybe missed out on. Um, but yeah, we're, we're, I think we're all very, very tired. We're all very, very stressed. We're all recovering from lots of different types of trauma and us as 21st century saints I think we're going to be sharing with you pretty soon what that's looked like I mean you can see right you can you can see this is the face of a stressed tired person so yeah we we're, we're going to talk and we're going to get deep and meaningful in the next couple of weeks but in the meantime one of the ways that many latter-day saint women um look to for inspiration when things get rough as as uh, Emma Smith for a long time Emma Smith uh, the name was kind of anathema we just we didn't really talk about Emma and then she uh, suddenly became 
popularized again, uh, pedestalized, of course, again. <laughs> and uh, she's kind of become a bit of um, a bit of an icon because people can connect with her story in so many different ways. But there's lots that we so there's lots we want to know more about Emma's story. There's lots of myths around her. Lots of you know lots of stories that people want to know what really happened there. Um, so we wanted to speak to the expert. Um, John, you've studied a lot about Emma Smith. So let's introduce you to our one of our dearest friends, John Hamer. John, do you want to talk a little bit about who you are, what your background is, and uh, and that all, all those good things? Sure, absolutely. I am so very pleased to be joining your podcast. Um, it was such a pleasure to be able to meet you. Um, last last year when I was uh, in person that we'd met before online, but to actually be in person in Scotland, and then also to be able to attend the last Sunstone UK was such a, um, a marvelous event. And um, I could totally see what you're talking about how, um, well, on the one hand, there was a there's a, a weariness because of everything and all of the all of the, everything that has happened. And there's just and it seems like in some cases, there's no progress, no way forward. But on the other hand, I met so many amazingly hopeful um, Latter-day Saints of all varieties from the UK at that Sunstone that it was it was really exciting how much energy there is there. Um, and I and I felt that was more true than when we've had Sunstones even here in Eastern Canada, <laughs> you know, where uh, where I thought that there's just a um, you know when you have a um, a religion that is so um, intimately connected to the United States. <laughs> and yes. then you have to deal with, I mean, obviously there's a huge uh, British heritage uh, because of the um, because of the, the early converts, you know, in, in Northwest England and also in Wales and Scotland. And, um, and, and, yet, and yet there's a big difference when, when you have a church that is so centralized uh, in, in Utah in this case, uh, and how you were to be from a different country from that. And and for Canadians here, we are. I'm, I'm coming to you right now from Toronto Centre Place, which is the downtown uh, congregation and church of Community of Christ, the former reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints um, uh, here in Toronto. And so so we are like across the border from the U.S., but a lot of people. It's hard for Canadians and Americans get mixed up in people's minds, maybe the way that Scottish people get with English people. I don't I'm know. So, I feel so seen <laughs> as a country. We're all, yeah, yeah, we hear you, Canada. <laughs> and so, um, and so, and so, we we have that uh, you know you know sort of that little bit of uh, alienation from being part of not you know and there's an American church and being Canadians in an American church. And this is also true for Community of Christ, which is headquartered in, in Missouri as opposed to in Utah. Uh, but in both cases, this is the country that, uh, you know, like it's the first country that the church is organized after the US and then and then the United Kingdom is the second country. And um, and so, uh, I don't know. And so and so it is interesting, the, the commonalities in the experience. And so that's one, one of the things that I really treasured by being able to spend so much time with um, with Mormons, with more former Mormon seekers, members of Community of Christ in both. I actually got to go to Wales, England, and Scotland, and so it was really an amazing trip. Um, I'll just tell a little bit more about myself. Yeah, so the um, 
the congregation here, I serve as uh, the presiding elder of the congregation, which is to say uh, pastor, which is one of the original titles in the church when it was first organized. Um, and so we it, that fell out of use in the LDS church, but it means essentially branch president. Um, bishops have replaced that role in the LDS tradition, but originally bishop meant the financial officer in the early church. Um, the very first pastor of this congregation was a guy named John Taylor, uh, who had uh, immigrated to Canada from England, and he later emigrated to the United States uh, and became one of the apostles and went off to Utah with Brigham Young and became Brigham Young's successor. Uh, and I'm the 40th pastor then of the congregation. Uh, there's spent some time where uh, the congregation through a bunch of that time in the intervening like the 1850s and 60s and so uh, it was disorganized, but there were people that had still went, by the time we reorganized the congregation, there were people who still remembered Joseph Smith coming here and preaching. And so that would have been just a couple blocks west of here, <laughs> which is where uh, John Taylor uh, would have lived and held cottage meetings. Uh, my background, uh, I grew up in the LDS church in the uh, Utah tradition church, but in Minnesota. Uh, I. Uh, became a doubting teenager, left the Mormon church as an adult, and went into studying, was unchurched, was not part of any religion, and did not really consider myself to be a religious seeker. Um, uh, instead, I studied history uh, and was going to go into academics. And ultimately, by doing my own family history, I encountered the ex-Mormon community. I started going to Sunstones. I started to you know, feel connected to my people. You know, I've been part of this uh, ancestrally for seven generations, this movement. I got to know uh, the Community of Christ, the reorganized church and the historians there. And I was so um, amazed by the integrity that the church, the place that the, the Community of Christ had come to. Um, and ultimately felt a sense of calling to uh, membership myself. And so I uh, was formally baptized on April 6, 2010. So a little over a decade ago. And I've subsequently moved here to Canada and become the pastor here. I love that. That's, um, I, I think Mormonism as a wider subject, uh, um, it has such deep roots that, you know, whenever I think we, we go to these events like Sunstone, which ha has got such a, you know, it's, it's to educate, it's to inform, it's to, it's to build community and, and help us understand and communicate and, and all of it, you know, explore really what it's all about that I, I feel like, um, for so many years, uh, we, I think as Latter-day Saints, we are presented uh, a correlated history and it's, it's, it's given to us. So when I hear these stories, I've already, as much as I love Mormon history, I've kind of already switched off because I've seen the end. I know how this works. Um, and then whenever we're hearing it from, um, you know, from, from a historical perspective or especially from a perspective of a faith group who didn't take the Latter-day Saint route, um, it, it makes me have to work. And I love that. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll hear these names. My ears will prick up and think, oh, I know that. But actually, I don't know anything about what you're going to say next. And it's it's, so it's it's very stimulating, I think, for me. Before we jump in, I also want to just kind of um, maybe just cover just a little bit of, um, because we have such a, we have a core 
active, faithful Latter-day Saint audience. I wanted mm-hmm. to speak a little bit to the relationship that um, Latter-day Saints have with Community of Christ. So in the UK, and I think it was um, the, the year that you were here for Sunstone was was a particularly, you know, particularly good year. You were getting to do lots of visits and things. But we mm-hmm. also had had the pageant earlier this year um, where a delegation from Community of Christ were, were able to go as, as guests. Um, Andrew Bolton of Community of Christ uh, gave one of the opening prayers for the pageant um, itself and yeah I mean the the I think the interfaith work that um, we see both faiths um, engaging in is is beautiful there is still this um, I think perception because people haven't really heard so much um, about what happens here in the UK uh, you know just it's, it's quite hard to find Mormons anyway in the UK isn't it so um yeah so when when we're maybe speaking with people about um often Sarah and I uh, when we need ministry we'll reach out to our friends in community of Christ who are just who, who just support and lift us up at times when we really need it um in ways that we don't necessarily get to experience for a variety of different reasons um through our Latter-day Saint community. So when we mention Community of Christ, um, we have found that when we sort of try to explain, people will ask, oh, is that the fundamentalists? That's the yeah, first yeah, right. question. Um, right. And what we then tend to say is, no, um, <laughs> Community of Christ is what we would describe, what Sarah and I have sort of um, connected with is Community of Christ is... Emma's church to to us community of Christ is Emma's church so um I'm kind of almost going to ask you to explain what I mean by that <laughs> but oh, yeah. tell us a little bit about so because we're going to dive into Emma's story in a moment so tell us a little bit about sort of that misinformation um that, that although a lot of good work has been done there's still you know people don't really know a lot about community of Christ yes <laughs> so well so like you say um there's there's been an interesting um, revival within the LDS Church of Emma, uh, but it has been a um, I don't know it's been like a new odd hagiography he- hagiography hey, we say so so when we have a hagiography hey, as opposed to a biography is where you make somebody into a saint you know and you only tell good stuff and you're like you're saying you're putting them on a pedestal and um, and th- and it's part of this uh, Joseph and Emma. Um, uh, romantic couple hagiography uh, hey that comes into LDS uh, church-produced movies and and statues and paintings and all this kind of thing um, that really is weird for people in Community of Christ because Community of Christ people are um, the the descendants of of the of Emma's church you know that and the and the church that uh, Emma Emma was a major opponent of of plural marriage. And um, and the modern LDS portrayals just completely delete the plural marriage from the story, uh, and so to the extent that there are now just vast communities of LDS polygamy deniers, you know, so people who um, deny uh, the historicity, the actual um, conclusive historical record. So the, the there's a complete historical consensus. Joseph Smith practice polygamy. Uh, uh, all historians agree to that, but there is a, you know, again, there's a large, um, in this day and age, a, a um, 
communities that don't care about the historical record and they um, and they have their own ways of uh, apologetics for that. And it's just it, it's so unalien to community of Christ people to think that that the Utah Mormons are now denying polygamy <laughs> because right? Because we, because they don't, they're like, what are you talking about? The Utah Mormons are all, are promoting, you know, and so, but you know, that's because we are also out of touch, right? So the both churches are out of touch with each other. But so what I'll just say is that, um, that yes, yeah, so there is a a schism, a schism that happened in the church when Joseph Smith, the founding prophet, was killed. So there was no clear um, succession plan that was laid. Uh, the largest single faction of the church. Uh, followed Brigham Young to Utah, and that became the LDS Church. Uh, the Emma and her family did not follow Brigham Young, and in fact, uh, were quite antagonistic to Brigham Young as the leader of the polygamy faction of the church. And so Emma um, ultimately uh, reorganized the Midwestern reorganized with the Midwestern Saints. Her son became the, the second prophet of the church in the Midwest, Joseph Smith III, and there, and we were that group has come to be known now as Community of Christ. Pre previously, was known as the Reorganized Church um, because we said that the church fell into disorganization when uh, when Joseph was killed. The same way that Joseph Smith had said when when the apostles, the original apostles, were off the earth in the first century A.D., that the church fell into disorganization. And then, when in 1830, when he, Joseph Smith didn't found the church, he organized it. He reorganized it because it was still the same Church of Christ. So we made that same claim in Community of Christ that it fell again into disorganization uh, when when Joseph is killed, and then it's from that. And so Emma continued to be um, an active member to you know her the end of her life. Uh, continued to live in Nauvoo, uh, where she's buried. Uh, she helped uh, she for the early church period before her husband's martyrdom. She helped produce two hymnals for the church. After her son um, uh, becomes the second prophet of the church, she produces two more hymnals. And so we have, there's four Emma hymnals, actually, not okay. just one. And uh, and so that tradition continues. The, the tradition, the, one of the reasons why our hymn tradition is so different uh, in Community of Christ and then in the um, LDS church is that already by the 1840s, um, the apostles who were in control of the church in the mission field, they were in control of the church in the UK. <laughs> you right. know, so, and so they had printing press in the UK. They cr created their own hymnal in the UK while Joseph Smith is alive. Emma creates the second headquarters church uh, hymnal, the second Emma hymnal. And that's, the, that's the, the hymnal that our tradition follows, you know, those, and then those next two Emma hymnals, whereas the LDS tradition follows that UK apostle hymnal and it goes off in its utah direction anyway so that so so we continue to with the split occurs in groups but not but not formally before joseph's dad death and then it becomes formalized and specifically we're the church that emma stayed in and that emma continued to influence uh including her her very strong opposition to plural marriage so can you take us back a little bit then um so that's where the split happens and those things didn't happen overnight either those those things no. it, it was complicated 
Emma herself is not straightforward, right? She's that's she's right. she's complicated, and I th I wonder if that's why so many, um, especially women, feel very connected in many ways to Emma because we can see her wrestle with things. So, can you talk a little bit about about Emma? Tell us who she is. Sure. Um, so one of the first things that always has to happen, I think, when Mormons are trying to get to understand, and when I say Mormons, I re I mean people in the LDS church. Right. Christ, <laughs> yeah. well, so, so when you say Latter-day Saints, and so Community of Christ people can call themselves Latter-day Saints. So we use the word Latter-day Saints. So we would say reorganized Latter-day Saints. And, and so, but we use the word Mormon to refer to people in Utah, which is, which I shouldn't do okay. anymore because people in Utah don't use the word anymore ever since the most recent prophet. So I gotta, I gotta train myself here. So anyway, um, I'll say LDS when I'm meaning the people in the, because we don't use the abbreviation. That helps. Okay. So, so, <laughs> so, um, so for LDS people, um, um, there's always a, um, a miss, you know, it's hard to understand, Emma. Why would you leave the church is, you know, is, is the, from the perspective of the LDS perspective, which of course she didn't do. She continued to be, you know, a, uh, a Latter-day Saint to her, to the end of her days, you know, and, and very uh, fulfilled to her testimony, true to her testimony. Um, and so, and so my friends, uh, long time, you know, I later became friends with them. They'd already written this amazing biography, um, you know, Linda Newell and, 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 and Val Avery, um, you know, they titled their biography of Emma Mormon Enigma. And, and the reality is it's because Emma is an enigma to Mormons. <laughs> it's not, in other words, it's not that she, I don't think that she is as much of an enigma if you think of it from her perspective, yeah. which is also the community of Christ's perspective. Uh, and so, and so from her perspective, um, these guys who were, yes, um, uh, co-religionists, they were part in church offices, these apostles who were um, part of um, her husband's church, they stole the church and took it with them, you know, and, and more or less as opposed to, you know, it had been part of a family affair with the Smith family until then and continued to be in the terms of the church that stayed. And so that is a that way I think it's you have to kind of even see it from that perspective to understand Emma's perspective. in it. But yeah, Emma is a um, um, she's a person of, uh, I think, a lot of amazing strength, uh, a lot of amazing personal character. Um, she also is pragmatic though. So she has some flexibility and, uh, and, and she gets criticized by, um, by some of the people who are for that. And so, for example, when in the polygamy fight with William Law, uh, when William Law uh, wants to say, this has got to be exposed and brought, pulled out of the church and he creates the Nauvoo expositor and he, um, precipitates the, the the events that lead to the end. Um, you know, Joseph Smith's reaction to that actually is what the, causes the problem, but essentially that that uh, uh, expose, um, he's, he's very uh, anti-Emma because he sees Emma as being a collaborator, as being part of uh, what Joseph is doing in, in terms of taking the church off the rails. And so, and so, so she's criticized from in, from both sides in that way, <laughs> but um, if you think of it again from her perspective and um, the in general limited options available to women, the uh, constraints of the social norms of the legal system and everything else on women, the um, the the path that she took 
displayed a lot of fortitude um, that it was certainly not an easy path almost the entire way through. So, so I would say that that represents for me a lot of strength of character and um, just actual endurance. Right. She is a woman who says no when yes. she needs to. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about when she has, uh, you know, because when when I think when when we're in relationships with anyone, um, it, it's you have to be able to say no. You have to because you know we're two people don't share an identity, which I think often is what Joseph and Emma become. You know, it's almost one word, Joseph and Emma. Um, yes. She almost doesn't exist in her own right. Um, especially in the time period that she's living in. What does it look like when Emma says no? Um, what are some of the circumstances which have been presented to her? Where? Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the, in a, in a, in a, one story, one narrative of her saying no, I think that is probably told in the LDS churches that, well, maybe they don't tell it. I don't know if they would tell it or not. <laughs> anyway, so she, they're living in Nauvoo. They, um, have built the, the mansion house. She's been living in the homestead. Uh, she goes to St. Louis to buy furniture uh, for the new house. And when she comes back, um, because the Nauvoo house is, I'm sorry, because the mansion house is being operated as a, as a boarding house, as an inn, while they're building the big grand Nauvoo house hotel that never gets finished. Um, uh, while she's gone, Joseph installs a, a bar, a, a alcohol saloon in in the in the parlor, and um, and so you know it's like sort of a you know you know that he does it while she's gone because she wouldn't let him put it in it if she was if right. she was there and when she and and when, when and I think that the the story is when she um, gets back and it's there she says that's that's going out of there and she and she takes the kids and moves back to the homestead until they until he gets rid of it and so he has to put it you know he has to move it across the street so that's an example of saying no so she was um uh she was a, a person who was interested in temperance uh the temperance movement and so the time period the context for that in uh frontier especially frontier american society um whiskey was the main drink and people are drinking, you know, it's an American version of scotch and uh, every, and there's a lot of whiskey drinking, just a crazy amount. <laughs> and so, and so the temperance societies at the time are advising, uh, trying to get uh, men, especially who are the, the worst abusers to, um, to switch to beer because that's a temperance drink. And so that's why, so for example, um, Emma, you know, she, she previously had said similar things about the spittoons and the, you know, all of the, the elders of the church are using all this chewing tobacco and they're all, you know, um, drinking whiskey and so forth. And so the word of wisdom emerges out of that complaint that Emma has, and that's why it advises barley drinks. It's a regular temperance thing. So you should be drinking beer and not, you know, hard liquor like whiskey as the idea, but it's also says very clearly, it's still a compromised document. This is a is a, a word of a counsel, you know, by way of wisdom, but not by command or constraint as it's original. But the idea of it is, again, this is where Emma is influencing the movement. And so I think we we kind of go from this vision of Emma, who sort of, what's, what's been presented to me is, uh, you know, Emma's wringing her hands about how awful it is that she has to do the cleaning up and, uh, you know, and so Joseph then receives a revelation because, you know, 
because poor Emma, but this is a woman who said no, who has been able to say, um, I don't find this acceptable and I am willing to make changes based on that. It it sort of shows a different, Emma, rather than a pleading, waiting for something to happen, Emma, this is an Emma who makes things happen. Oh, Um, yeah. Yeah, I love that. We we have a question about, uh, does Community of Christ uh, consider the word of wisdom as a commandment? No. So I think that like, I think literally it says it's not a commandment. (laughs) And so, and so the original church, um, the original church, early church, you know, had a uh, kind of a mixed, uh, occasionally they tried to enforce it a little bit more, but generally speaking, it is not, uh, it wasn't viewed as a commandment up until in the Utah tradition, it became a test of fellowship in the 20th century. And so it was not even in the in the 19th century you could see again the the spittoons in the in the Salt Lake Temple the you know you know in, in terms of the in terms of where the apostles are all meeting I'm, I if I recall I'm not as I'm not as a, a much a historian of late Utah history as as that but in the early church it's not and it's it's also not in the um, in Community of Christ and so here's how I interpret it how I read it so yeah people are talking about how uh, in the comments here that it's about hot drinks. And then that gets interpreted somehow to you can't drink uh, Coca-Cola, you know, which is not hot usually. I mean, if you drink Coca-Cola hot, maybe that's how, you know, people enjoy it in, in Wales. I don't know. But <laughs> most people have it cold. <laughs> so, <laughs> but um, but what's the idea there? So there, this was just a um, this is just folk knowledge and they're doing what they're doing what they think is healthy and so they're just putting into principles so coffee and tea were relatively new drinks in the early 19th century for americans and so as a result of that there was a bunch of folk uh, ideas that if you have actual hot drinks that that's actually bad for you and um i think they still have that in like germany if you drink ice they think it's bad for you if you drink ice cold stuff and, and so forth that's a folk idea and so and so what I would just say about it is, is that it's not whether or not the literal things in there are true, you know, that, you know, that hot drinks are bad for you. No, no I don't think so. But, you know, but rather that it's, it's, it's counseling, go with actual medical knowledge. And we mm-hmm. have a lot more of that now. Um, it's a, a advocating for moderation. You know, it's, a, 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 it's a mo- asking for temperance, bringing balance. That's good philosophical advice for how you live life. I try to live by that. You know, I try not to, um, you know, one of my greatest vices in terms of food that's bad for you is that I love um, French fries. And in Canada, we have French fries where you interlace it with cheese curds and you pour gravy over it. And so if you thought they were bad for you to begin with, (laughs) it's bad for you. And so I try to not eat that every meal. Because I think that's, that's so it doesn't mean I never have poutine, but it means that, you know, this is, you know, we try to have moderation. And so that's how I interpret the word of wisdom. I'll say other people in community Christ can interpret it differently. I have a very good friend, the former archivist of the church who actually baptized me. Um, uh, he has never had coffee because he he uh, personally interprets it that that's a part of the is a religious covenant that's important to him. So it depends on how you want to interpret it. Uh, and you can have your own interpretations in Community of Christ. It's not a testing fellowship. It, that was what I was was sort of going to make. Yeah, it's, so it's not the membership test that it is no. 
for Latter Day Saints. And yeah, so I mean, we, we're doing this episode about Emma Smith, and I and I knew that that this is what happens. This is what we do. Um, we have all of these questions. What what does this actually look like? How are you guys experiencing the word of wisdom? And although there are these uh, similarities, yeah, there are very clear differences. And 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 I love that. Um, coming back to Emma, um, let's start talking about polygamy. One of the okay. uh, what what can we learn about uh, about Emma's views on polygamy from? from her from the the church that she would go on to be part of or to found i should say she was very opposed to it <laughs> <laughs> it was a no <laughs> right and so, we're, we're sure <laughs> we're very sure yeah. yeah so um and so that's in the that's in the um in all all components of the record you know and so um certainly uh in the Relief Society, which is established um, as the Women's Society in, in Nauvoo uh, with Emma as the president. Um, one, of the, one of the things that she is uh, opposing is, you know, she's on the one hand for the church, it's, it's trying to get, oops, I lost you. I, I still have you, we can, we can still okay. hear you. My, uh, okay, I'm sorry, for some reason my, Okay, I'm sorry. So the church wants to um, wants to get rid of the rumors of polygamy. So so it's an open scandal uh, at all the non-members around. There's all been all of these exposés, and so that, that polygamy is occurring. And so she, they're trying to eliminate the rumors, but she is also attempting to clamp down on the practice. So the practice is much more widespread than anything that she will have known about it. And uh, I think initially she maybe doesn't know about it at all. Um, there is a um, a point, uh, uh, a point when uh, Hiram, who had been also not in the loop, but is brought into the loop and is uh, converted into by, from from his brother, uh, that this is a true principle. Says, well, it's a true principle. We need to tell Emma. We need to tell everybody about it. And so um, that's when the, the revelation uh, that becomes uh, DNC one thirty two in the LDS tradition is dictated. We don't consider that a revelation. <laughs> And community of Christ tradition, um, I consider it to be an abuse of priesthood authority. Um, I think that if you read the text of it, it's a problem. And so I, I apologize for um, your more LDS members about that. But this is a difference of religious opinion that we have in the two churches. But anyway, that's for me. It's not a. I, I uh, think it's it's worth uh, it just you know giving giving some some space to though because uh, <laughs> so w when I've had to uh make suggestions i'm much more overt now but um i remember years ago when it when i've had to sort of bring something up i may phrase it and uh you know to to the my church leader in the spirit of emma smith can i ask <laughs> and then i would ask the question okay and i think um in the spirit of Emma Smith, exploring that I think is really important. And so many Latter Day Saints are um, are exploring the validity of that historically, um, uh, morally, uh, and and have complicated feelings about it, which I find incredibly exciting. I think if um, if Emma has been presented with this. Um, we today we can see coercion we can see 
absolute spiritual abuse of power um, when if we were looking at any other organization. Um, so I think latter day saints are, you know, have have a lot more sort of freedom now than ever before because there is so much information out there and also because we have conversations like this that allow us to ask these tough questions do we have to accept it in part or all of it or you know or, and what is what is really the point behind it and, and here we're talking to faith or you know no that is that's not something that's part of canonized scripture and community of christ right no it's not so for um, we have a very particular process for canonization, and that includes that the um, that the prophet of the church, who's uh, what part of who's calling. So we're all called to be pro prophetic people and to uh, and to receive personal inspiration, revelation, continuing revelation. That's one of our enduring principles of the restored gospel. Um, but the prophet of the church has a special calling where they um, can give inspired counsel as we call it to the church and then the church operating always by common consent as it says many many times in the doctrine and covenants uh gathers and we do it it's called like you have a general conference our conferences happen uh triennially triennially so every three years we elect delegates and the delegates are become essentially like a global parliament for uh the church and our global parliament, the World Conference, is the highest body. And so the the uh, the prophet of the church submits the inspired council to the conference. The delegates mindfully discern that, considering their role as prophetic people, is God calling us to add this to our canon of scripture? And then when they we we do, if we do. <laughs> We usually do. <laughs> if we do, then then that becomes a new section of the Doctrine and Covenants. And so we add sections to the Doctrine and Covenants quite regularly. Um, but nobody ever brought DNC one thirty two in the LDS tradition. You know that that document uh, to a general conference to the world a world conference of the church. And so it, does, it hasn't gone through uh, a canonization process the way that would ne be necessary to make it scripture. Does this mean there's still time for us to get it in there? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, exactly. I think it's off the table. Good, I'll just tell you, good, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> you bring yeah. that and you see which, which delegate. No, it would have to be, uh, Kurt, well, Kurt Prophet would have to bring it, I think. I don't think that the conference can introduce it. I think that that's one of the roles that the prophet has is introducing mm. the, the document. So. Let's let's take this fun detour because one of the things that the Brit Vengers as a group, so... Just, you know, if, if Peter Bleakley were here, he would be talking about, uh, he would already be running off talking about uh, common consent. Um, yeah. the, the thing that we are sort of calling for a return to not just something that looks like common consent, but actually adheres to the principles of it. So could you talk a little bit about um, the prophet? Uh, which blows my mind that uh, everyone who seems to know him just calls him Steve. <laughs> and um, yeah, just bizarre. Like, he, what you actually, he has a first name and you use it every day. Um, okay. Um, and also, yeah, so, so what, tell us about this transition time or this discernment time for, for Community of Christ. So, for the prophet, as, they, as they're discerning to bring counsel? Well, so yes, both uh, what's happening currently with, uh, with oh, where the we're president at. of, yes, please. So um, so we have a tradition, uh, 
so so the presidency the first presidency in the early church were not just the senior three most apostles and it's so it's hard for people in the utah lds tradition to understand that because it has nothing to do with their subsequent thing but what happened when brigham young who was the president of the council of 12 when he what we consider hijacked the church then then the apostles are in charge and the entire um the entire kind of history of the lds church has been concentrating power into the what now what became quorum of 15 apostles of which the senior most is the president of the church they're all prophets seers and revelators and you sometimes call it him the prophet but anyway he's one of the 15 prophets and of whom the um he gets to pick two counselors out of that group and then they become the first presidency and then there's 12 more um, in the community of Christ, there has never been, they're totally separate councils. So the council of the first presidency can consist of people who were never apostles and often never were, you know, often the presidents were never apostles and that sort of thing. And the council of 12 apostles is different. The council of the presiding high council, uh, the, uh, the presiding bishopric, those are all separate councils. You know, you could, the person can switch around between them depending on a calling. Uh, and so uh, usually, as a so as a result of that, we do not have this thing where um, the guy has to be almost 95 by the time he gets in, right? Mm -hmm. So instead, it is much more much more common for a person to come in in, let's say, their mid-40s, and then maybe to be president for as much as long as 20 years, and then retire. And retire. Oh. <laughs> and, that, and that's certainly what has been happening more recently. So um, uh, in modern times here, recent time, my lifetime, I'd say. So um, the, the, the last uh, of the Smith prophets, uh, prophet and president Wallace B. Smith, he retired, I think in 90, 1996, continued to be emeritus prophet of the church. Um, so he's he's the only he's only the great grandson of Joseph Smith. It's amazing how close the generations are. And he only he only died last month, and so he passed away after a wonderful long life and just an amazing life. And so uh, so he continued to be the emeritus prophet. So the next uh, prophet and president, Grant McMurray, uh, was not a Smith. He uh, left office without, uh, and, and he's still alive, but he didn't take the, he didn't become an emeritus prophet, but anyway, he uh, resigned for personal reasons and then also health reasons. Uh, and he's alive and with us, a wonderful uh, leader who I've talked to this year. Uh, and then in around, uh, I'm not a dates person, let's say in the early 2000s, I just barely gave a lecture on this on Sunday, but I have the dates written down when I'm doing it. So let's say 2005. Yeah, 2005, um, Steve Veazey then uh, after a, um, so it was a worldwide discernment prophet process. Uh, everybody in the church is praying and who is God calling to be the, the president and prophet of the church? Um, so we try to, you, we think about that. We think about what are the qualities needed. We think about who are people who have given amazing ministry. This is how we understand and discern callings. So callings, um, don't happen entirely like in this top-down way but it's like you also uh in your congregation we don't just automatically give everybody all males um priesthood at a certain age it's rather um individuals within the congregation you're sensing oh well, this person is really fulfilling the ministry of uh of a 
of a deacon, which is to say that they are making sure that the building is all, <laughs> you know, is all really uh, uh, set up for worship, that they are preparing, regularly preparing the emblems for the, the sacrament. They are the person who is on Zoom doing your Zoom technical setup, <laughs> you know, those kind of things. And so, so no matter what age they are, a person could be called to be a deacon and serve that role, right? And in the same way, no matter what age you are, um, you can be called to be, uh, a, let's say, an evangelist, and so, which is to say a patriarch. And so a patriarch evangelist. And so this person is really providing this kind of deep spiritual, and I sense a calling. And so you, you write that and you write that to um, your pastor and the pastor also then prays about that with the pastor team, uh, callings that are sent on to uh, uh, to the mission center president and so forth. But the, the, uh, the point of it is for the prophet, we all did it <laughs> and we are all doing it again because this is happening right now. Um, and then, and then, um, uh, right now, the way the process is working and the way it worked last time is that we send those senses of calling to the Council of Twelve Apostles, and the Council of Twelve Apostles right now have been delegated to be um, to be kind of the arbiters of that, the facilitators of that. So they're going to they're going to ultimately pick uh, between all of the different possible candidates who God is calling to be the next prophet. And so we should know fairly. So that happened in 2004, 2005, when Steve Vesey became the president, Steve Easy, uh, announced his retirement earlier this year, uh, and then, and then much more sadly, he has subsequently been, um, he was subsequently hospitalized and then went on a medical leave. And that medical leave, uh, we don't know the details of it, and uh, it's kept been kept personal from by the family, and we respect their their privacy. But he is on a medical leave that is extended, which means that he is not going to the. So we are thinking we are thinking of for him and, and just in, as a person and, and he's continuing to be here in our prayers. But in terms of the who is God calling, um, we're, the process is going to go on without. So, I I really love the idea that um, while you have someone who's you know sort of the the figurehead, someone who's 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 holding that calling, um, it's okay to say that you're a prophetic people but when you know when the expectation is well are you going to tell us what's going to happen next you're retiring isn't this your job you are a prophet and and they're like well yeah use your discernment you all are going to figure this out and that's uh, to empower a people to make those kinds of decisions is incredible and th there isn't the tension around those decisions that I think you may see in other organizations for some reason which is just spectacular because all views seem to really be respected. Well, we've had tension. <laughs> so right. I don't want to, you know, it, it gets fractious sometimes. Um, yeah. We certainly, uh, we certainly had like our big tension in the 1980s. And so that was uh, where. Tell us about that. You yeah, see, so... I, I see tensions and disagreement because we don't have it. <laughs> I see it so healthy. And that, yeah, some people. I mean, we have we have tension now too. I don't want to say it without, but there was yeah. very fractious tension in the eighties, right? Yeah, so in the eighties, um, the eighties, we so as a people, as a church, uh, we were going through what lots of folks in the UK uh, who are LDS right now um, are very aware of, which is the kind of faith crisis that happens when you um, when you are have your traditional sacred stories that you kind of thought were history 
And then, then those get confronted by actual history. So when you, you know, have been reading in the manuals about, you know, or seeing LDS videos about this very perfect um, uh, cherry picked view of, of what the history was like, and then you actually read the history, um, then that, that causes a, uh, can cause a faith crisis. And um, because um, the church, the RLDS church leadership was much less um, suppressive of, of academic information, yeah. um, you know, in other words, because much more open, it was not perfect, but it was more open to um, embracing, uh, let's say, conclusive academic truths like the Book of Mormon is not a historical account. So the Book of so Book of Mormon historicity is not that is not a that is not an open question. So the Book of Mormon is like uh, some of like books like Tobit or Genesis. This is not doesn't have um, the characters are not historical figures. Uh, and so and so when you find that out, that was a, that rocks a huge amount of people's faith. You know, and so so we were going through that in the 70s and 80s, and there were people who were um, more equipped to say, okay, I'm going to be informed by what uh, these new academic disciplines of history and literary criticism are telling us. And it also corresponded with greater educational opportunities for regular members who were engaged in uh, critical thinking and wanted to be part of a worldwide community and they were prepared to they were prepared to give it rid of some of their provincialism we're the one and only true church with this um, very narrow view and instead wanted to be you know say no we, we can share something of what our background is with the whole rest of the world without saying everybody else is wrong um, so there was that group which i call the progressive wing and then there was a, a traditionalist wing that became reactionary that was saying no um you know this is literal history and we have to do things the way we've always done them uh and they and the those camps became very solidified in through the 60s and 70s and into early into the 80s and then the the breaking point uh for the traditionalist camp was over ending uh discrimination and priesthood ordination on the basis of gender and so the church had always uh, refused to ordain women and then uh, they stopped that uh, policy and so and then when that happened that was a bridge too far for uh, many of the traditionalists even though it's a crazy place to you know there's a bunch of other places i think that you could have um, hung your cross on and you know and 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 martyred yourself over because this one is so clear that there were apostles in the early church that the priesthood is not male only, you know, even in the New Testament precedents, but certainly if we look at what was going on and and we've always talked as a church of uh, a restoration, trying to get back at the way that earliest Christianity was. And it's very clear that it's a, um, I think that there was a big focus, especially in the earliest stages of wanting to be more egalitarian gender wise in terms of em embracing uh, women's giftedness and, and the leadership, women as disciples, women as leaders, women as apostles. And so um, women as deacons, <laughs> you know, we had all of those things in the early church. So so, so I don't think that that was the place that you should have uh, uh, drawn the line in. You know, there could have been other places you might have done it. <laughs> but anyway, that's where they drew the line. And so then, and so then there was a, a, a movement where uh, it sometimes said that as many as, let's say, a third of the extremely active people, you know, that there's always more people on the rolls than there are um, 
So it's a, it's a fraction of what the number of people that are actually on the membership rolls, but it might have been a third of the really active people who um, formed uh, their own congregations that are that are not part of the denomination. So, um, and we call them, and we call them, and they call themselves the Restorationists. And that's again confusing because aren't we all sort of Restorationists? But um, we sometimes also call them the you know, the RLDS branch movement. So the independent RLDS branches. One of their biggest um, denominations within that is called the Remnant Church, and that is confusing now because there's a, a LDS uh, group called the Remnant. <laughs> so right. it's, a, it's much <laughs> exactly. bigger. They're not related. <laughs> so. <laughs> So that's um, kind of I, I think about um if if I did not know that community of Christ existed and um and the journey that that took and I'm thinking about if what would Emma's church look like and and we we would imagine that there would be a church where uh, people could say no um that tensions would happen that perhaps yes relationships may even end um but th those discussions would be robust um mm -hmm. worthiness tell me about worthiness in in emma's church so yeah i always have to rem remember that this is a thing <laughs> when, uh, there when are I people to, out there in this world who have forgotten that this is a thing <laughs> so um so yeah, that is not a central focus, you know, in Emma's church. So I know that there's, uh, so I, sometimes I say, you know, when I tell people that I'm a pastor and I'm the 40th pastor, you know, going back to the first John Taylor and things like that. And they say, well, is that sort of like a bishop? And I'm like, yeah, sort of like a bishop, except for then I, then I'm reminded that, oh, wait, no, bishops do these worthiness interviews where they are policing you and, and trying to, I mean, I even inquisitive, you know, be an inquisitor to you uh, and that that actually has uh consequences because you can um you can be barred from your you know your daughter's wedding or whatever you know the, because in uh, the temple and that kind of thing if you uh how you depending on how you answer um so no we don't do that there is not a um there are not um worthiness interviews there's not um there is so so there's a couple there's a couple differences in practice so so we have a a distinction between member and priesthood that we probably need to start to get rid of, mm -hmm. but we are still maintaining that just to explain the um, the practice of where we're at. And so the early church did not have automatic priesthood ordination for all males. Um, you know, like when my great 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 grandfather first um, joined the church in 1832, I think he was ordained to be a, maybe a teacher first, you know, or maybe a priest first. But so in other words, it wasn't that everybody immediately became an elder if you're a certain age or you're uh, a 16 year old or you're it's a certain age. These are all adult callings, but not everybody is called into them, right? And so only some people are called into them. So people who are uh, um, an elder is either somebody who is intent, who's can, let's say, take charge of a congregation and be like one of the congregational leaders, or there's somebody who are sort of missionary focused and are doing outreach. And so again, those would be where those callings are. So, so for, so for priesthood, there's a, a little another sense of set of guidelines that are not, we wouldn't call it worthiness, but we could call it that as you are a representative of the church, there are guidelines for what you should be and shouldn't be doing. And so, um, so one of the guidelines is as a as a person in priesthood. So I, I hold a priesthood calling of 70. 
Uh, and so uh, as a 70, I am not supposed to be openly criticizing and condemning church policies uh, because I am upholding those policies as a representative of the church. Um, I can have personal um, disputes with those and there are forums for that. And so we were going to have, for example, a, um, um, a we this later this month, we're going to have a congregational business meeting, which will be a legislative business meeting. And so if I am opposed to this or that policy, I could make a legislation to that. The congregation can debate that the congregation can pass it or not. And that can be passed on up the chain. So we can forward that to the Eastern Canada conference and also ultimately to the world conference to change policy. So there are places where we could do that. But as a person who is in priesthood, who's talking on your show, I shouldn't be saying here, we have this policy, this policy is totally wrong, that kind of a thing, because the policy is that I shouldn't say that. So I have that. If I wasn't in priesthood, if I'm just a member, you know, which is not just a member, members are members and member, and there is nobody, and we have servanthood leadership. And so members though, are not made that additional covenant where they have to adhere to that policy. So members are quite able to uh, criticize all of our policies without any problem. And so there's no, um, it's not, I, you know, I don't, there's not a lot of issues for in my opinion, as far as I know, in my experience for, for worthiness. So, uh, if a person, I guess, is just being consistently dishonest in some kind of a way that maybe there would be a, a, a way that we potentially could revoke membership. Uh, certainly there, there are, people who can, who, if you are in priesthood and you openly, um, you know, openly break some of the policies or whatever, you can have the pre your priesthood removed, but that's, you're still a member. So those, uh, that would be, that's the closest we have to worthiness. So in terms of the, um, the role of a pastor, as opposed to a bishop, when somebody is in some kind of a, a spiritual, a funk, you're in a, um, a place in life where you're having any kind of any kind of a problem, you know, you've, you've had a terrible relationship issues. You're you're in the midst of, you know, maybe in the midst of a divorce. You are you're uh, don't know your job doesn't feel meaningful for you. You know, you're, you're perfectly invited to come and talk to your pastor, and I will um, provide what what uh spiritual counseling that i'm able to do if there is a situation where you know where there's you know where we're talking about something where there's um your mental health is at risk and and uh then we would we have we would advise you to you know then go into actual professional counseling you know you know so so it wouldn't be that i would think that i could answer all of these questions mm -hmm. sometimes there's there's an underlying issue that would be beyond my expertise but um but certainly would try to provide um those kind of spiritual counseling but it is not something that i as an inquisitor am asking are you doing this and that here and and, and that uh, we don't really actually focus on those kind of thou shalt not commandments list uh, instead we uphold an enduring principle of the restored gospel of responsible choices so we're called to discern what's the responsible choice here in this situation and and so i could help in that discernment process that the individual's having and saying, I don't think that'll work out well, but okay, I, let me hear you out, <laughs> you know, that kind of a thing or, or something. Yeah. Well, interestingly, and and I'm I'm aware that there's some questions here. I'm, I, you know, we're, okay. we'll ask you in a moment, but um, 
just on what you were saying um i mean I, I'm, I'm aware that in the uk in community of christ the young adults have um you know have, have been working on a resolution have been have been working on something that they would like to bring um yeah. perhaps um you know could potentially be seen as a as as a you know something that would be related to morality and yeah they are receiving assistance in wording and thinking about what that would look like from people who may hold completely contradictory views, um, right. who have leadership positions, who hold yeah. priesthood, and yet um, they are assisting uh, the the young people of the church to to be able to say, look, we want to discuss this. We we want to bring this up and 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 really evaluate. Do we need to make changes to how this works? And it's so healthy. It, no no one's threatened. The only yeah. um, sort of thing that I hear being discussed is making sure that everyone can have their voice heard on it. And it's it's incredible. Um, could I uh, then, so first of all, how many members are in Community of Christ? Do we know the answer to that question? Uh, the 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 member roles, I think, as we cited, is 250,000, so a quarter million. And uh, do, do we know about the UK numbers, just out of curiosity? I, I don't know there's, about the UK numbers. There's, <laughs> there's a good few... Um, few uh but there are there are good few um yeah there, there's there's congregations around i don't we i think um as people from community of christ get to come up and and visit with me in my home um and and you know we we sort of extend invitations if anyone's visiting does anyone else want to come i guess i am the scottish outpost or or this, this, <laughs> is, this, this is the scottish yeah. outpost so mary is asking um in relation to the book of mormon um so was it just a made-up story by joseph smith um is isn't the book of mormon the basis for the church could you speak a little bit to that sure um absolutely the book of mormon is the basis for the church so that is what attracted everybody to begin with. There was no um, uh, missionaries going around teaching a first vision story, what we now call the first vision. If anybody in 1832 was going around and talking about Joseph Smith's first vision, they would have been referring to the first time that the, uh, the spirit comes, later Moroni comes and, and uh, talks to him about, uh, uh, it's just because the other story wouldn't have been known. Uh, and so certainly that would have been what uh, excited my ancestors uh, and, and to join way back then. Uh, and so what we have is a misunderstanding in modern times about um, sacred story and history. And so the modern academic discipline of history really wasn't even invented uh, back in Joseph Smith's day or is just beginning to get rolling. Um, and certainly the people in the backwoods of upstate New York were not trained in it. Um, and so people um, in general in the past simply assumed that most of these things written down, most of the things in the Bible um, just happened. And so most, um, most uh, people didn't have any awareness of the difference between what we might call now historicity, which is a modern idea and concept and and just simply a, a sacred identity story, what we might think of as a myth. Most of, the, whereas the Bible is 
does include all kinds of, uh, there's much more historical kernels behind a lot of the Bible. Almost, almost nothing in the Bible as written, if you're, if you're going to do a rule of thumb, it is not a history. That didn't happen. So the things in the Gospels, especially more or less nothing in the Gospel of John, you know, so, and so the question is sort of like, well, is the Gospel of John just made up? So we have this idea that, you know, when we say, well, is that a true story? And we now somehow mean, is that a historicity story? Um, it, it, it's so hi, truth. Um, historicity is not truth. Historicity is whether historians can tell you, is that particular um, narrative likely to have happened or not? Or how likely or is it really impossible for it to have happened? Uh, and that kind of a thing. So it's just simply historicity. It's not truth. Truth is things about things like the meaning of life. What is our purpose? Things like that are gospel truths. So what I try to tell people is we should not be um, uh, building our houses, our edifices, our churches on the sand of history. It needs to be built on the rock of our, of our relationship with Christ, with God. In other words, the gospel rock. And so, um, so is the Book of Mormon just made up? So there, it's completely, um, I think it's a very, it's a completely defensible position historically for people, historians and, and non-Mormons to say, this is just made up and, and to just dismiss it that way. Um, I think it's also very defensible within the Latter-day Saint religious tradition to understand uh, this as something that Joseph understood as the true sacred record of the indigenous American people that he was restoring through a gift and power uh, of God in the same way that he had also believed himself, I think, as a treasure seer to be able to exercise a gift of seering that he, he would be able to um, scry and see where where things had been buried and that, and so on. And, and, and in that same way, he is converting that power to um, a gospel purpose, a, a powerful, a redeeming purpose of in the words of the Book of Mormon, to bring to bring about the salvation of uh, Native American people that were in destitute circumstances as a result of colonial genocide, and so and so within a a biblical worldview like a simple um, backwoodsy kind of frontier American is having, how can we say no? We don't want to. We, we it is. It is not Christian to say we're exterminating a whole other people, which is what lots of uh, extermination was the, was what was going on uh, in the uh, American tradition at the time. The very moment the Book of Mormon is coming out, we have Andrew Jackson's uh, expulsion order. All native uh, land is seized east of the Mississippi River. All uh, natives are forced to migrate west of uh west of into the plains in the trail of tears that is happening contemporaneously and so i think that this book is saying no these are people who are um are actually chosen by god they are actually part of god's covenant people of israel and if they only had a, the only reason where they're in this situation is they don't have a book in other words they don't know their true history which which Joseph Smith believes is their true history. In other words, this, um, this sense that they had, um, had had a high civilization, all of these earthworks and mounds that were all around them and all around in the Midwest um, that implied that the, there were, had been a preceding civilization. 
And so if we could only channel that history and bring it back through by revelation. And so I'll just say that in and of itself is a positive end. And Joseph Smith believes in, as we read in the in Nephi itself, where Nephi says it's better to one man should perish than a nation should dwindle, you know, one man will die and a nation should dwindle in unbelief. That's an ends justified the means um, philosophy. I'm not promoting this philosophy. <laughs> I'm saying that we can use this philosophy to understand um, how uh, there, there are white lies that justify what might otherwise, he might otherwise believe is happening spiritually. So in other words, he's may may believe that there's some truth to what he's doing while nevertheless he is definitely not telling the full truth when he's explaining to people uh, about it and so and so and and then finally on top of that as we pull out you know and pull back the biblical worldview itself is eurocentric and it is ultimately denying um, the indigenous indigenous people and they're it's saying they don't have a true history they do and it's not the book of mormon however just as a caveat, if you are indigenous and you are um, Latter-day Saint and you identify as a Lamanite, that is your right. I am not as a white person saying that you can't understand that as your heritage. That is perfectly within your purview as a person who's been colonized by my ancestors. You know, and, so, and, and you, that is a response that indigenous people, some indigenous people have had to that um, colonialism. But I'm just saying for people like me who identify as a settler, somebody, a person whose ancestors first came to North America 14 generations ago, it's not appropriate for me to say that that is a native history. It's not, um, right. but it's, uh, that's, so that's my response to that. It, it's part of our heritage. It's where we have come as a church, we have now, we are now understanding more. We have a bigger understanding of scripture and what it is and what it isn't than other Christians who are so far removed from when the Bible, the last books of the Bible were written down, that they, they're reading it as if it's a literal history book and they, and they are absolutely wrong and it's causing them to worship this book and read it out of context and not understand it and, and fall into horrible um, uh, error as a result of that, where they're, where they're uh, hurting and abusing people because of uh, misunderstanding this text. And, and I found it quite interesting that um, lots of Community of Christ uh, members that, that, I, that I'm, you know, friends with, uh, the book is there and they uh, don't necessarily place tremendous amounts of value on it um, sort of daily. It does, it's, you know, it's, it's just something that, that's there that in the same way as other faith texts are there. Um, again, it's not a test of membership. Is that correct? So, or am I wrong? No, it's not. No, nothing's a. So, no, right. I mean, what would be a test of membership? Sorry, <laughs> break that habit. There was okay if if you had. But to. I mean, it, it, I would say it's no different. But it's also not any different from. So let's say, uh, the Book of Daniel. So the Book of Daniel is written, um, or whatever it is, the year one thirty seven BCE by a guy in uh, the time period of the Seleucid empire you know in time period uh, and and they are pretending to be daniel somebody who was 400 you know two or three hundred years earlier whenever it is and they are not that guy and that story that they're telling and they're making up uh you know including 
you know, which I think could be, again, channeled because they're trying to speak, right. to, they have their ancestors to speak to the present day for them. But it is not, if you're going to say it for a history, if we're going to say whether it's history true, is it true? No. So it's not history true, but it could be meaning true for the people who were undergoing a, a, a very terrible time at that particular moment when um, uh, the Seleucid king of Syria had desecrated the temple and it was meaningful to them that they're, that, you know, that the temple will be purified and the other kinds of things that are in that book. Mm. But it's not a book that was written kind of as it says it was, and those characters aren't, aren't historical figures. I mean, some of the characters are, but they don't understand the history very well. So. Right. Um, we, we also have the question, um, and I love this because I, th I think uh, if you were to ask Emma this directly, I'm, I'm sure that she would, you know, have very clear views on it. Do Community of Christ members pay tithing? Um, I, my, the financial officer of my congregation would say they don't pay enough tithing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I always tell I always tell you I'll give the same deal for your LDS listeners. If you want to convert now, I'll give you half off. <laughs> <laughs> but no, we, so so we pay tithing uh, again on at what we consider to be like say we're to discern to how you would pay tithing according to your true capacity. So there, I would never if you are somebody who is on a fixed income and you're living paycheck to paycheck. The the last thing. You should, we should have is a story where you gave your last uh, five you know, pounds to um, uh, so and so for to the church for you know and then and then hopefully the rent came in because of some miracle or something. Right. That's not how it works. Pay your rent. <laughs> you know. In other words, you not that that's that should be the first focus. And indeed, even in terms of um, in terms of your giving, when you are in a in a different you know in a good healthy condition, you also um, there are many charities. There are ways that you can give your time and your uh, and your money to things that are really meaningful to you in your community right now. Uh, and so that is also part of giving and part of being a Christian engaged in mission, a Latter Day Saint engaged in mission. So it is not about um, ten percent of gross or something like that. And then and then you got to come to me and I and I check off your taxes whether you paid it or not and otherwise i'm not like to the temple you know or something like that so we're not we don't doing anything like that so it is it is a it's more we would consider free will so whatever um whatever you feel called to give so i i feel called to give uh my life to it <laughs> so and uh i'm i it, to me it's um to me i think that what we're doing is is so meaningful and important for um, both my people, the Latter-day Saint people as a whole, and also just our place in the world and what we're helping with, um, that this is also what I'm given. That's what my will set up for. Right. So I don't yeah. have children and I, I'm I'm all in. So so we but but you don't have to be, <laughs> you know, so it's it depends on what, what you feel um, is your sense of. Um, I, I love thinking about, uh, you know, a, a historical Emma who is. Um, you know, able to see needs on the ground um, with her friends who are discussing what needs are and in what way can we meet these needs, whether it's the church or whether it's sort of more broadly poverty and they get to work and they are using their skills. They are yeah. um, coordinating. They're using they're using their time. And and yes, finances come into that. The resources come into that. But I, I love this um, 
that this concept of it's not just coming down to the money it's not coming down to the checks um and there are no checks made about that um <laughs> the, the questions are so are so fantastic that um that if it's okay i mean maybe we can get you to come back and talk more about emma oh, yeah, but, um, yeah, i'm loving well. the I'm fact that we, questions yeah want, that's that's want. something let's let's be let's be useful um and <laughs> go, where, go where we're needed so um yeah mary's asking um what is the temple used for? So there is a temple. Yes. Uh, Two tell temples. Tell us about that. Tell, tell us in. Yeah, so there's a temple in Kirtland, which is the first temple built by the movement. My ancestors helped build that. Uh, and then there is a temple in Independence. And so um, the temples uh, are not used for the primary thing I, I think that LDS temples are used for. So, uh, which is to say the different, um, let's say the, endow the, the Nauvoo endowment that's based on, you know, sort of the Freemasonry, uh, and then also, um, ceilings, which is based on plural marriage. So right. we are the, we were opposed to plural marriage. And so that's not what it's about in terms of that. Um, it's more about what was going on in Kirtland. And so in Kirtland, um, which is more like a heritage temple and the, the main, which, but it's still used as a spiritual, of spiritual focus. So we go and have spiritual retreats there and that kind of a thing. But um, essentially the church, when it was built, the Kirtland temple is church headquarters. It is a place for um, the, the central um, sacred worship that's on the, the lower floor. On the next floor up, it's uh, a school. Uh, school of the prophets, the school of the apostles. And so the idea of it is, is that um, when all of our lay ministers, all of our elders who are going to be sent out, and they're not all just 18 year olds, but anyway, you know, everybody who is uh, of any age who is going to be providing ministry, they are come into the school uh, of the prophets. We, we say the temple school, we call it now, the temple school and uh, they they're trained in how to do that kind of ministry. Um, how you know taking how do you uh, you know scripture courses you know understanding like uh, literary criticism of scripture, basics of ministry, um, uh, other kinds of those kind of temple school courses. And that is understood as being endowed with power from on high, both in terms of being endowed educationally, but then also spiritually endowed. And so that's like the original word what endowment actually means as opposed to ritual, right? And so, and so we still have that, uh, that sense of, of, of being empowered um, spiritually and especially educationally uh, as a temple. And the temple is also continues to serve the one in independence as church's headquarters. And it continues to be um, a place of very special spiritual focus where um, we come together for a big, it would be like a big worship service, uh, a solemn assembly kind of worship service. And then um, uh, and then it's also a place of pilgrimage. And so the Temple of Independence is a spiral. And so in the same way, I think that this is one thing that is a little, so there's progression that goes on inside temples in the LDS church. So you are, um, it's not, Every, anybody can go in the temple. So it's not, it's not, wow. not forbidden to anybody, but anyway, so you kind of are going on the worshiper's path as we call it. And so you enter through um, an archway that it represents the sacred grove. And so uh, all, but, but the sacred grove is not something where Joseph is getting some kind of exclusive authority to be 
the dictator of the world, but rather it means that every person can be a spiritual seeker and God responds to all of us, right? And so, and you go through it and the, and the, the, the imagery on the inside immediately is the burning bush. Same thing in the, in the restored covenant as in the old covenant. So Moses, uh, you know, is also, you know, seeking the divine. So we're all seekers and we can then be on this disciples path, the worshipers path that takes us into the inner sanctuary as we kind of uh, cycle, but also aspire, right? And so that's the, um, so there should be more of that. <laughs> and then the temple is, there should be more pilgrimage, but we need to, I, I, I just feel like the temple is so important that we should be using it more than we do as a people, but we, um, we don't use as much as we should, but we, we need to be using it more. But the, uh, the other thing is that the temple is uh, dedicated to peace. And so we are, um, have a special focus, um, I think that, again, especially descends from Emma, of being a peace church. So there are so many times when um, we try to build a utopia um, in, in Kirtland, in Missouri, in, in Nauvoo, uh, but we did it without, with, with just real kind of contempt and antagonism for our neighbors. <laughs> And so, you know, we, when, when, the, when the early saints were running around independence uh, and they were talking to these frontier guys, you know, they were telling them things like the world is going to end in like five, 10 years. And all of the property of you, you guys, you Gentiles is going to be gathered up to the saints and you're going to all be burned up and we're going to own all of this. And this is going to be the capital of the world. And, you know, that kind of thing. Just just really sweet stuff that was making them really loved <laughs> by all right. loved by all their neighbors. How to make and, friends. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And, it, it, and it got and it got very obnoxious in the um, the Mormon Missouri War period when uh, troops led by Joseph Smith and other church leaders formed illegal militias, went to neighboring counties, uh, sacked the towns, burned the towns to the ground, stole everybody's property and consecrated it to the church. So that was a not good with the neighbors. <laughs> and that's similarly in Nauvoo. And so, so, so have a, as a result of those failures, so those were all failures, including Nauvoo, um, Emma, who continues to live in that ghost town, her son, Joseph III, who has to grow up in a town that is this amazing ghost city of his father's visionary failure, um, I think sees we can't keep doing that. We, we need to be doing when we're, we need to actually have a peace focus. And so that if we are trying, if we're going to build Zion, it has to also involve um, being, living peacefully with our neighbors. And so the one town that he, uh, Joseph III, then uh, goes on to authorize in Iowa, which is actually just over the Missouri border, you know, so if you take a line and you go from Independence to Far West to Adam on Diamond, then just over the border into Iowa, there's a town which is called Lamoni. And if you know uh, your Book of Mormon, you know that Lamoni is the pacifist king, you know, of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, the guys who said, we're not going to, we're, we're not going to keep taking up arms and being a threat to our neighbors. We're going to make Zion peacefully. And so that is where um, the churches, our version of BYU, so the church's university, uh, which is built on land that was given by Grace, by one of the important women leaders of the 19th century church. And so it's called Graceland University. And subsequently, because Elvis named his estate that, it gets confusing for a lot of people. <laughs> but anyway, Graceland. 
I am so glad that you brought the subject up because I wanted to ask about peace. Um, so thank you for because yeah. that is a huge focus. Oh, um, so the temple is dedicated to peace, and so we have a prayer for yeah. peace every day. There. That, and that, that was why I went on that tangent. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's appreciated. Um, so we we have a couple of questions. Uh, yeah, uh, do you send people on proselyting missions? Um, so not proselyting missions, and it's not a thing where all like kids have to go do it or they'll get the men have to or they'll get social pressure and stigma if they don't do it there's nothing like that so if people um if young people feel called to that we have a or a auxiliary organization called world service corps and it's about service you, and so they'll go and um it can be you can do something where it's like a, a heritage um service kind of mission where you are going to kirtland you're going to nauvoo and you're like helping doing guide work for people who are coming there. Um, but when the, but that kind of a thing is also, you're also getting college credit because that we bring history professors who are teaching you the actual history so that you can answer the guide, you know, as a guide, the real story of what's going on and that kind of a thing. So, so that would be one of the things, or you can be going to, um, World Service Corps would be doing other things where we go to, let's say a developing country and, and be assisting in whatever, whatever they need locally there. So there would be, um, so we have, would have that kind of a service mission for younger people. And then uh, in terms of, uh, in terms of being like a, a proselyting mission, what we, what we really are focus on is kind of getting into community with people. And so, I mean, technically this trip that I would have had to the UK last year, you know, that's, I guess, like a missionary trip, but, um, I wasn't going around when I was visiting with you, Jane, I wasn't, you know, like this wasn't the hard sell where I'm like, okay, well, you've had the first three discussions. So I'm going to challenge you to join this trip within a, <laughs> within a week or something. Right. So yeah. uh, we're very bad. I would just say the thing that the community Christ members are worst at is proselytizing. <laughs> and so, right. so we don't really, we rarely, um, people rarely talk about it, uh, you know, and even talk about, Hey, well, have you ever, so I, so when we when I, we were doing a baptism, um, right when I, soon after I became pastor and, uh, of a, a new member and one of the, uh, wonderful ladies who had been attending the church for the preceding 20 years or so. So she had just kind of one day, she's an immigrant from Africa and she'd wandered into the church and she'd just become part of our church family, like from day one. And she had been there the whole time. And I said to her, you know, Sally, you've never joined the church. Would you want to get baptized? <laughs> you know, and she said, oh. Yes, I would. You know, that was like the, that was the, nobody asked her because you know because she'd already been a part of the church. You know, so, well, yeah. so that's my kind of attitude about proselytizing. So I, I would like I, I would like people to do it a little more because we need some more members. Yeah, well, it, it's such a. This is actually super close to you know Sarah and I were just talking about about this uh, subject more broadly, um, very recently, but um, no one. Uh, and we've we've hung around. We've had you know dear friends, best friends even, and community of Christ for many years, and no one has ever asked us, to, <laughs> "Do you want to be baptized? Do you yeah. want to be?" I mean, formally taught. I'm not even sure that that <laughs> that's an actual thing. You know, there's there is as much information available. Uh, the only the only invitation has has ever been, "Would you like a hymn book?" <laughs> 
and that's yeah. that's been it it's wonderful um or you know do you want to come into a worship service um the the question just just is never because people seem to be more focusing on us and uh or, or the conversation or the relationship which is a beautiful thing um we've had um alan has um has had um a, a few comments that i really I've, I've wanted to sort of bring up and uh so let's talk for a moment about finances um not this time in relation to tithing but maybe kind of um how transparent is the church because the lds faith has had a lot of controversy it's still playing out at the moment in the media um talk to us about how monies are spent so yeah that it's I think all the finances are completely transparent. So everything is published. Uh, we um, know how we're doing at all times to the extent that anybody wants to go through the budget and, and do it, um, they read and, and pay attention to it. I can certainly say that goes all the way down to the congregation level. So one of the things, so we're having two business meetings. The first one is a legislative one, but then we're gonna do the the annual business meeting where we, we give the all the members the whole budget everything that we've spent everything that was taken in uh and members just decide on the priorities even whatever we want to do as a congregation so here in canada this congregation is legally organized as its own uh charity it's a sub charity of the national church community of christ in canada and so but so this members are legal members of the charity and we're all you know and we um we we can do our own priorities pretty pretty it can be pretty wildly different so unlike a lds church award where it is a franchise where everything is programmed congregations do not have to have a building they do not have to meet on sunday they can be they can be meeting you know uh on saturdays and primarily have their primary meeting be a service thing that they all do together or a um or meditation they they are primarily are all legacy congregations that meet on Sundays, but they don't have to be. So you can choose that in terms of your your priorities even. So it's very open and and there's a lot of freedom to what it would be like. And so uh, it's very transparent. We um, have had, uh, people are, are probably aware in the LDS tradition that we've had some my, uh, financial struggles. So as the church's membership has grayed in the, especially in the developed world, where more, where people have more freedom to give tithing and are, are able to have have more resources to do that, um, that has led to like a budget decline. And, and specifically, one of the um, one of the issues was, like many, let's say, North American corporations, like let's say General Motors, when you had this thing where you had a pension plan, and um, and then General Motors is a much smaller company than it was back when it controlled you know 70 percent of the u.s market or something like that you know back in the in the when your pension was bigger they you end up having this unfunded thing for you know when the pension as people lived longer than you thought they were going to and so and so that has been like the the main uh financial operating issue that we've had that as now we're supposed to be past that as of this year so we've been on a you know on a on a transparent financial plan in order to be living within our means and planning for the future as a church. The church is in no financial difficulty in, in real terms because uh, the church has vast assets in terms of property. 
Uh, and so and so people sometimes in the ULDS church think that the community price is going to go bankrupt or something like that. It's not. That's never been the problem. The problem has simply been uh, in operations. So the church will be around forever. But yeah. Um, and Sarah and I uh, even just it was well last month uh, the the UK um, community of Christ were having some discussions about uh, st structure and you know finances and business uh, that type of thing and um, how not not just were there local meetings happening to ascertain. Um, and to get feedback from members, uh, but also to make sure that as many people could attend and be part of that process as possible. Um, it, it was happening online too. Sarah and I got to attend, as we do, of course, we shared our thoughts. <laughs> and, um, you know, the fact that those are sought after, welcomed and, and valued and is, as part of a, a broader conversation is just, is just incredible. Um, Jane's baggage is just about to enter the chat. So <laughs> <laughs> just to be personal for a moment. It's just lurking here away <laughs> in the background. Um, yeah. So for, for my experience, I think um, is similar to many people throughout the world who have care responsibilities or who uh, have physical disabilities, uh, whether it's age or whether it's um, mental health uh, needs, um, I often cannot leave the house uh, because yeah. my care needs for my son. And to have a, a community, a faith community, which is able to um, function in the way that I would need it to and the way other people can access um, worship. It's not something that I have been able to experience um, in my faith community. And I'm very vocal about it. Um, quite often we find people who, who retire and have to move into retirement homes. Their whole lives, um, they have been active, very, very active, very social members of a church. Um, not, ne not necessarily just the LDS church, but, you know, when, when you move into a retirement home, things change. You don't have that same ability to access community and the world moves on without you. Yeah. And so this is one of the things that sort of I've been struggling with for many, many years, because, of course, these don't these things tend to not hit out of the blue, although they do sometimes we can see when it's coming. Everyone's going to get older. Everyone is going to have some kind of barrier at some time in life that means I can't get to a congregation on a Sunday morning when traditionally congregations work. So would you speak to me a little bit about um, the idea of a church without walls, a congregation <laughs> without walls, and, uh, and what your congregation is doing to meet global yes. needs so we were definitely as a congregation struggling with that exact issue that you're talking about so um so this is an old congregation like i told you historically it goes all the way back uh to the 19th century and um but it was also an old congregation when i came here so when i um when i joined the church in 2010 uh, and came to this congregation. So this has been my congregation. It's going to be my congregation my whole life. Um, 
this is uh, the average, I think the, the median age when I joined then became 79 because I brought the age down. Okay. So then, <laughs> so when, when uh, there was one young, younger woman, younger than me, you know, and she then had a baby. And so I was the third youngest. <laughs> and um and so we were struggling because a lot of our um members were having those kind of mobility issues as uh seniors so in some cases in assisted living or not able to move and then also we'd had members who um had to travel a long distance to come into the city uh and that was increasingly difficult as uh to as they felt it was less safe for them to drive at certain age at a certain age, and 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 so we um, uh, we in 2015 launched therefore a online service, and so we called it Beyond the Walls, and uh, began to build a community where we could um, have the same kind of service um, that we had always maintained. So the congregation, despite being small uh, and graying, actually had a very rich tradition of having amazing speakers. And so um, and so even if there were not that many people in the pews, there was a very professional service. And so we wanted to be able to show that and share that more broadly. And so that kind of became the nucleus of, of our service, but it was born out of our needs. And it was also um, at a certain point um, then uh, that was originally just a, a monthly service but at a certain point our sunday service um, we had fewer people who were able to come and be our speakers um, because of all of those issues that you're talking about in aging and so and we had developed so many members who were members all around the actually um, north america especially but also somewhat in europe um, and so as a result of that uh, we voted right before a year before the pandemic to, to merge our, our online service and our local service. And it was primarily an act of necessity so that we could have members who were leaders of the you know, elders who were um, uh, not in Toronto, you know, they're in Missouri or Texas or, or wherever they all lived uh, so that they could preach. And so that was necessary for us, uh, but it ended up creating a, a hybrid experience early. So we were there early. And then also we had pressured and pushed um, the uh, denomination. I don't say pressured. Anyway, we, we had went through our own discernment process where we, where we thought, why can't we have communion online? Why can't we, why can't we do the sacrament online? And, uh, and we actually studied it as a congregation and we prayed about it. We had, we devoted our, our um, Sunday school class to that for a couple of months as we talked about our understanding of it and reading the rules and everything like that. And we wrote up a, a 15 page report and we sent it to the apostle for Canada and, uh, and, and said, and at the end of it, it says, and that's why we understand that we are already authorized to do online communion. <laughs> so we didn't, we didn't, we didn't give them the option to say, and you, no further input from you is necessary. <laughs> you know, in the just, spirit we, of Emma Smith, we get here, right? <laughs> and the apostle writes me back right away, and he says, "Please don't do that yet." <laughs> you, know, you know, because <laughs> we're, but we are, because we are working on it right now. He said, "And can we please give your your report to the church?" 
Central World Church Theology Committee, because we're talking about this right now. And so, so a year before the pandemic, we got new uh, guidelines. We, we discerned this as a worldwide church. We did talk about it at our world conference. And, and as a result of everybody's uh, thinking about it, um, uh, we got new guidelines the year before the pandemic that we could have sacrament online. And so that, that really started to make this experience um, inclusive of, of everything. Uh, and then, and then finally, the thing that happened uh, when the pandemic happened, when the shutdowns happened, we were as a as a congregation that already had a very, um, I would say, professional, sophisticated system, relatively probably the most advanced in the church at that point. Um, we suddenly had we be, suddenly became the life raft for everybody in the denomination, and so. Um, and so once we saw that, we said this, we're called, and this is not anything the headquarters told us to do or anything like that. We felt called as a congregation, okay, we need to, we need to be translating our service into the church's three principal languages because all of these folks in in French Polynesia who are seventh generation members of the church, giant community, they need to the worship service too. All of the people across Latin America who um, would like to be able to have an online service who are quarantined, they need that. And so we made that commitment, translate the whole service into the three languages. And we immediately, as everybody knows, when you are on Zoom, um, you cannot sing hymns together. <laughs> and so, oh, and, and hymns I just, we all tried at first, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and hymn singing, singing is so central to what it means to be Emma's church. You know, and so we right. just, I mean, it, the LDS church too. And so, and so, so much church. And so, and so we created a, a virtual choir, the Beyond the Walls choir, which has subsequently recorded a huge proportion of our hymnal. And actually now our, our hymns are used in congregations all around the world, in addition to um, that we use them every, every week. And so it's people singing all around the world, recording their voices, they're mixed together here, and we uh, then have that hymn. And so, and so uh, there's even a question right there, how do we do this virtual sacrament? And so let me, let me explain how that works. And so, so um, every, so we don't have a thing where you can't touch the emblems unless you're a teacher. So, so you don't have to be in priesthood in order to, to take the wonder bread and cut it up into little pieces and, you know, and pour water into cups. Right. So in, for our tradition. So we, that was never, that wasn't our rule anyway. So you could always have a system where you set up, the the emblems and then and so now what we say is that you can set up emblems everywhere so you mind you know be do it mindfully it's a spiritual practice you prepare emblems in your location so whether it is a little cup of grape juice or orange juice or water or you know whether it's a little piece of bread or a little piece of a roll or a cracker or whatever you know it could be it's essentially a bread in, in a liquid you know kind of a thing so that it's bread and wine symbolically. And you set that up in your location. And then when we um, when we get to that part of the service, it has to all be in real time. So we're all connected uh, all around the world. And then uh, wherever the priesthood members are, um, you know, they're on our, our stream. I'll, I will say as the person inv inviting people to communion, I say, in as much as you're able, in your location, please kneel facing the emblems as Elder So and So from Venezuela, you know, reads the um, blessing on the bread in the Spanish language, and then they do that. The translations are on there, but you know the prayer anyway. You don't need to have it translated. <laughs> and then, and then we, and then we do that. And so then everybody, um, they, we do the passing of the bread here, and then everybody in their home uh, can 
you know, take that we're there. And then we do the wine, you know, so we now go to French Polynesia where high priest, you know, so-and-so will, will read the prayer in the Tahitian language sometimes, but, but sometimes in, or, you know, and sometimes in French or whatever. So, yeah. And it's, it's, been beautiful to experience um as as one of the people who got to experience um the growth of the online the implementation and those early steps of of online worship um using uh you know using youtube and using zoom yes um it, it was literally as my needs were just starting to emerge and to see how those were being met as they grew um being invited to so so while you know we there there isn't any sort of proselyting you know members are included you know people you know just just today i was asked you know will, will you sing um you know at, at one of the the things that's coming up or will you share a testimony um not yeah. having to be a member of community of okay. christ in order to fully participate is has been a beautiful thing and also just to just to sort of speak for my family too that um my transgender uh, child that my um LGBTQ family are, you know, they're, they are not just welcome. They are, you know, they're, they're brought in so lovingly and it's, it's yes. just such a, such a supportive place to be. We are definitely running out of time here. So, um, <laughs> John, is there anything you want to tell us as, as we, as we come to a close, anything you'd like to share with us? Um, well, yeah, I can just say, if you are interested, the nice thing about, um, just to see what the experience is. The nice thing about the fact that my congregation has moved more or less entirely online is that uh, that you can you can watch as a lurker and just see see what it's like. And so uh, and so our, our website is is Center Place spelled I think the UK way as well, but the Canadian way. Cent C and I would say C E N T R E Centerplace C A for Canada. Uh -huh. uh, and that, and that'll take you to like a sample service, including we have restoration when we have services where we focus on the restoration. We've done Emma Emma hymn festivals where we are doing the historic hymns. Um, we did uh, I, I did a special Christmas service a couple of years ago where I was able to preach from the pulpits of the Kirtland Temple. Uh, there's a bunch of things like that that might be just interesting to hear about. And then we just talk about. Um, all kinds of topics that are related to both uh, the restoration, but also Christian heritage in general. Before that, our Judeo-Christian heritage, and indeed just being part of, um, you know, worldwide philosophy and and uh, being seekers. And and so we have lectures on that on our on our YouTube channel. You can find that through our website too. Uh, that people that we we people are watching in very large numbers. So um the yeah yeah you guys get a great yeah. audience um and, and we'll put a link to all of this in the show notes to make it easier for people to find yeah okay very good um i guess what i'm what i'm thinking about as we as we wrap up here is the fact that in the 19th century we have emma smith who was someone who could say no to things even when it was difficult and she got her pushback it wasn't easy for her to there's a lot that we can learn from from emma and uh without putting her on a on a pedestal uh still allowing her to be to be human to see that kind of emma um 
makes me, I guess, realise that she was a 21st century saint living in the 19th century. She is what um, what I think we can be inspired to today. And so to be able to um, not only learn from Emma as an individual, um, what what pushing looks like, what saying no looks like, what, what making my needs known look like, also how to uh how to minister as an organization and the work of peace that we see from community of christ and the work of interfaith which is exceptional and the work of climate um responsibilities and um and stewardship there there is a lot of great work that is being done by this organization and um on behalf of latter-day saints um in the united kingdom on behalf of lds uh latter-day saints here and around the world um i just want to say thank you so much to community of christ as an organization and its members um especially to john who's with us tonight and to send our love and blessings and gratitude for all that that you have done to support us so thank you so much for being with us tonight we'll put all the links in the show notes we're looking forward to seeing you next week where we have um a great friend of ours from the united kingdom who's going to be joining us uh to talk about the latest lds survey that he has conducted that's going to be pretty eye-opening uh we're looking forward to seeing you then so with that good night everyone and we'll see you again soon bye